Please spread the word about my shows. I'm an independent creator and I would really appreciate it. I make K-pop guides, as well as I have exclusive interviews with songwriters, journalists, the artists themselves, best new music roundup episodes, artist-specific deep dive episodes, episodes about the history of K-pop, all sorts of content is covered. So to get your fill and support an independent creator, please check out 17 Karat K-pop wherever you get your podcasts, and view an episode guide at howtostand.substack.com. Hello everybody, welcome back to 17 Karat K-pop. I previously have done episodes about RM's favorite books and other pieces of pop culture he has recommended, music, movies, etc. through social media, but I haven't talked yet about his art recommendations. And I thought those were worth diving into because truly, you don't have to be into art collecting like he is to really find fascinating the life stories of these creatives. So I looked into the most interesting people he has expressed public praise for, and I want to share their stories with you. But I do want to say real quick where this all got started, because I just have to gush for a second, being from Chicago, RM really had his love of art fully blossom after a trip to the Art Institute of Chicago, right after we hung out, not really, but I was in the same room as him, saw him on tour that year, and he took his small amount of free time while he was in town back in 2018 on tour to visit that art institute where he recalls feeling kind of like Stendhal syndrome, when you actually have a physical response provoked from art. It really stirs you emotionally that much. He's previously described being drawn to collecting art because the concept of visual arts makes him think of eternity, and that sense of timelessness is something he wants to apply to his audio art as well. He would love to open his own exhibit slash cafe someday, and he even narrated a special exhibit for the LA County Museum of Art one of the first ever in a Western museum, modern Korean art exhibitions, called The Space Between the Modern and Korean Art, which is actually up until February 19th, 2023. In 2020, he gave 100 million won to the National Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art. That same year, he was named Art Sponsor of the Year by the Arts Council of Korea after donating to help their catalogs get reprinted and available in libraries nationwide. He's contributed thousands to the effort to restore a Joseon-era Korean bridal gown, Joseon Dynasty-era. That will actually be on display at the LA Museum in 2024, but next year it'll be first at Korea's National Palace Museum. He's even created a trend, inspiring fans, members of the BTS ARMY, all over the world to go check out museums and famous artwork for themselves. Actually, in the oldest museum in the Philippines, there's an exhibit inspired by the whole concept of namjooning. Namjooning became kind of a verb among fans who go do namjoon hobbies, look at art, take a walk, enjoy nature, etc. And namjooning became the theme of a special University of Santo Tomas museum, also including games, BTS-themed merch, and photo exhibits, ways to put a BTS twist on, an interactive exhibit to make UST history and culture feel more more familiar and accessible. I've really been fascinated by the way Kim Namjoon, aka RM of BTS, has talked about art. Love, love, love this quote from him. Art embraces the world of dream and disorder. It creates awareness and opens a window for how we perceive the world, unquote. These are in no particular order, but I did some digging, looking into the backstories and famous artwork from artists he has shouted out, and now let's get to that storytelling. 
I must apologize profusely in advance for how I'm going to pronounce artists' names and works of art. I really did try. I've been practicing trying to pronounce these carefully and accurately, and I really am sorry that I will clearly not sound like a native French speaker or a native Korean speaker, a native someone familiar with insert artist name here. Please be patient with me. Please extend some goodwill towards me. I'm trying. We're going to start by talking about Georges Seurat. Seurat is one of the artists that RM actually really fell in love with the works of during that famous trip to the Art Institute of Chicago in 2018. He's a French painter, a post-impressionist one, who used to actually be an impressionist painter. And he focuses on color usage, his theories about color usage, how it can provoke certain emotions. He views the effectiveness of provoking reactions in viewers as being tied to the color scheme as well as lighting and other technical aspects of displaying it. So he really tried to take kind of a technical, mathematical approach to his art. He was formally trained, grew up in Paris studying art, but took some time off for the military, then went back to Paris to focus on art, and he set up his own art group because the current ones did not satisfy him. He didn't fit in there. So he created the Société des Artistes Independents. His first big painting, Bathers at Anier, a picture of some young men just chilling by the river in a working-class suburb. In a similar style, one of his most well-known and influential works, it's called A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. This is actually on display now at the Art Institute of Chicago. It went through about 60 different versions before he completed it. It took two years to make and covers a 10-foot canvas. There are a ton of tiny dots covering this 10-foot canvas that took two years. It really requires the viewer to do some work, blending the colors that can form from all those dots. So as opposed to being an artist whose brush strokes blend the dots together and do that work for you, mentally, he approached it differently. The audience had to kind of be involved in completing the picture. It was also very influential because it was kind of scandalous as it combined people from different social statuses mingling together. And it became the inspiration for the famous musical Sunday in the Park with George. Here's a thought-provoking quote from him. Art is harmony. Harmony is the analogy of the contrary and of similar elements, of tone, of color, and of line. In tone, lighter against darker. In color, the complementary, red, green, orange, blue, yellow, violet. In line, those that form a right angle. The frame is in a harmony that opposes those of the tones, colors, and lines. Next up, Felix Gonzalez Torres. RM previously called a joint exhibition he did with Ronnie Horn, quote, my absolute favorite. Gonzalez Torres has been interested in the blurring of public and private life. Public displays of private images, private in nature, subjects. The more personal, the bigger the art display, the bigger splash he wants to make. He was all about blurring the lines between public and private spheres of life. And that kind of resonated with him because of his gay identity. He felt like he needed to emerge out of the closet into the public in a way. He was quite inspired by Bertolt Brecht, who basically also tried to make active participants out of viewers. And he made some of his work really overtly interactive. Like it would involve stacks of paper that he would encourage you as a viewer to take from. He's also made sculptures with candy that spills onto the ground that you can pick up. 
He enjoyed making his work not just for the meaning that comes from the interaction, but from the way it represents the temporary nature of life. It kind of reminds me of the art display with the clothes pile meant to be temporary referenced in BTS's Spring Day video. Just all about time being uncontrollable and art is not going to last forever, or can it? That kind of philosophical question, as opposed to a practical, literal one, that gets brought up in this work. He was born in Cuba, got a photography degree from Pratt Institute in New York, and got a solo exhibit just a year later. He then became an art instructor at NYU, spent a couple years in group material, Group Material was an art collective who worked together to make art based on shared ideas, shared themes, community, and activism. He changed things up and moved from photography to a focus on sculptures involving metal rods and beads in the 90s. Although in 91, this big photo display was released. A big black and white photograph spread across 24 billboards in New York. A tribute, basically, and a PSA about AIDS in memory of his partner who had died from it. He also was responsible for the Dateline series, which he started in 1987, randomly compiling dates and words affiliated with different historical, social, political moments. Kind of like this day in history, columns turned artwork. But the jumble seemed more random than that. So it's like your This Day in History post was put through a blender with others because it seems like a random assortment of descriptions put onto this foundation. But that was part of his interest too, is making art that makes you think memory's weird and how we group memories together is weird, how we filter certain events through shared lenses versus don't categorize them together, how much each individual might remember a certain date very differently. Those questions he wanted the Dateline series to provoke. The next person we're going to talk about, truly one of my favorites, the most interesting to read about. What a fascinating life story, insightful approach to life. Ronnie Horn. RM showed love for this sculpture that he actually bought back in December 2021 for over a million dollars. The sculpture is called Untitled, but the boomerang that returns is not the same one I threw. That quote in the title actually borrows from an author I spent a whole episode talking about, Haruki Murakami, in his book, Sputnik Sweetheart. Really short version of what happens in that book, it's about a writer, Samire, and Kay, who crushes on Samire. Samire starts a relationship with Miyu and seems to turn her life around, quit smoking, cleans up her life. So maybe the relationship is good for her, but the deeper she gets into it, the longer writer's block prevails. Kay, the guy crushing on her, starts getting letters from her from Europe. So, keeping tabs on her travels, how her career is turning out, from a distance. Then suddenly Kay gets a call from Miyu saying he needs to head to Greece ASAP because something just happened to Samire. He meets Miyu there, finds out that she went missing, and he thinks she's the kind of person who would hint at her whereabouts in her writing. So he gets into her computer, looking at her files to see if there are clues there. Classic Murakami elements of the story ensue when it seems like she's split into part of herself staying in one world, part in a parallel one, thanks to a traumatic incident involving a Ferris wheel. Yes, TXT, in the fact they have a song called Sputnik, did enter my mind when I heard about the Ferris wheel, but that's a tinfoil hat wearing theorist moment I will share another time. 
So Kay starts thinking parallel worlds are colliding, and the reason she went missing is because she's in the other one. Lots of stuff happens. Eventually Kay gets a call from Samire, who asks if he can go pick her up. And the place she says she's waiting for him to pick her up? The phone booth she always called him from. Just the typical phone booth where she would have called him from if she had never gone missing. There's a lot to it. The story's ultimately about unrequited love, complicated love by the influence of others, creativity, but also just struggling to figure out your place in this world. And the concept of parallel worlds is an interesting way to deal with that issue. The symbolic phone booth is reminiscent of RM's moment in the Wings era for BTS, but also just key in Murakami's stories. So this is just a long way to really gush over this work of art from Ronnie Horn that quotes that book. Her work covers photography, drawing, sculpting, all sorts of stuff. She likes to just sort of start before having a clear picture of what she's making. She said, quote, uncertainty that allows for possibility. It's part of the process of creating. This is by nature an irreversible growth process, a dialogue that opens things up instead of closing them down. I can't imagine doing something, the content of which I know, in a predetermined way, unquote. She said even in series, like her two-place series, she has started them and still greets each new entry as, I'll wing it and we'll find out what it looks like at the end. She'll know there's a connection, or there will be, that presents itself between pieces in a collection, but she doesn't work to find out what that is. She lets that happen naturally. Her approach is also interesting in how it immerses the viewer. The director of Tate Modern in London talked about her focus on the conceptual over the overt narrative with this really interesting quote. Her work requires silence. It makes you aware of your condition as an individual in confronting the world. And that is not easy. It can take some loneliness. On the one hand, you can feel related, involved, attached, but at the same time, the lines or the threads are almost invisible, unquote. She's also overtly said before, yeah, my work is really more about the experience of viewing it than what you're actually viewing, than what it is. She really admires Dickinson, Emily Dickinson, views her decisions as being just solely her own at a time when women were, even more than ever, what they said and did was dictated by the man of the house. She says, quote, I think her staying home was an active decision. When she looked out the window of her bedroom, she was able to see the whole world. When you read her texts, you know she was an incredibly worldly person, unquote, despite staying in her room. She wanted to see the world, experience it, and did. She works in New York. She dropped out of high school at 16, actually, went to the Rhode Island School of Design, graduated at 19, then began one of many trips to Iceland, one of her ultimate muses. She also, though, went to Yale then to study sculpture. In Yale, she got some networking that helped her get in touch with a German curator. Her profile in Europe has been rising ever since. Her big career moments kicked off in the late 80s and 90s, and despite her boost in popularity over time, she continues to self-fund a lot of this, insisting that a lack of donors would never play a role in what she chooses to finish making. Some interesting examples of her work you Are the Weather. That's the name of a photo book, where every page is just a model staring right at you, while neck deep in water. Each photo seems identical except the background weather, and little things like how much she's squinting at the sun, maybe. But you do take on the perspective of the weather. 
She created Library of Water, which has a former library host to these columns made of glass and melted ice from 24 different Icelandic glaciers. She also just has a basic word at the base of each, like cool, a word to describe the water, but a word that can be kind of broadly applied. There's Bluff Life, a series of 13 drawings that were created while spending a couple months in a lighthouse off the coast of Iceland. There's Gold Field, a very thin sheet of gold meant to resemble a burning flame in the way it folds. Bird, the name of a collection of photographs of taxidermied bird heads. Things That Happen Again, for two rooms. That's a set of copper cylinders that look identical, but they're in different places, so you can't look at both at once. So you cannot confirm if they really are exactly the same. She describes this as doubling, a way to get people involved in the work, almost like it's a picture puzzle. I really like how she summed up really well her own perspective on this kind of thing with this quote. It's a double Mobius, and I just love that paradox. Double infinity? What the hell is one infinity? Now you've got two infinities. It's almost like the double negative. It has this funny feeling of amplification, but of what? Unquote. One exhibit is When Dickinson Shut Her Eyes. It's a set of aluminum squares that each feature a different line from a Dickinson poem, A Wind That Rose. There's Doubt Box, just a literal box of cards that features both glacial water and images of taxidermied birds. This one I find the funniest, Cloud and Clown. Cloud spelled C-L-O-W-D, and Clown spelled C-L-O-U-N. The idea for this title came from Stephen Sondheim's Send in the Clowns, because she always thought the lyric was Send in the Clouds, and that misunderstanding is why she added that to her title. And that's what it is, it's a photo of alternatingly clouds and clown faces fascinating person. And a couple quotes I just have to share because she's just so interesting. Her perspective is so unique. Quote, there is always the experience that what you cannot see deeply affects what you can see. Presence occurs when a thing is what it appears to be. They are not images. So I have a certain way of working that is concerned not with the invisible, but with the non-visible, meaning it's there and you can sense it. The non-visible is confluent with the visible. It's the bigger part of the sensible. A related quote, I want to make sensible experience more present. People have much more knowledge than they realize. Making being here enough is just that. I don't mean it in the sense of dismissing the past and the future, but in taking what is here and now actively. She has found a lot of support in her friends, Felix Gonzalez Torres and Donald Judd. And Horn, by the way, made a, a piece in tribute to Gonzalez Torres and Judd called Gold Mats Paired for Ross and Felix. But now on to Donald Judd. RM has previously expressed interest in 40 found fakes. This is a really interesting piece of art because it misleads viewers intentionally. It's from 1979. People walk away assuming it's a list of people who agreed to something, some agreement, or they contributed in some way. But actually, no. It was all created by Ernst Caramel, and that was the point, to make you question why you found this art so meaningful, if it had a certain name attached to it, but not the person. The person's involvement was not there, but the name recognition was. The name was there, and the name was not there, not involved. And that contradiction is what 40 Found Fakes prompts. That's not Donald Judd's work, but his name is in there. And I needed to find a way to rope in to this episode, frankly, 40 Found Fakes, because I just found that interesting. 
But Donald Judd builds these giant structures in furniture, in artwork. He's also built for his own ranch house, one of three, where he hosts an annual open house called Casa Perez. Now let's move on to Quan Jinkyu. Aram actually owns a horse sculpture from him. He is from Korea, but did become a famous sculptor in Japan. He was always doing something very different. He made lots of his sculptures androgynous. He called himself an artisan instead of an artist. Someone focused on the process of creating with his own two hands. And at a time where for Korean artists, this was not the norm, he was into working with lacquer, terracotta, other then not normal material to use. He actually created a Jesus sculpture for a minister, his tallest piece ever, and the minister despised it so much, he just never put it on display. After all that work, he was like, this is awful. 140 of his pieces of art were donated by his family to be on display back in 2021. Next, Kim Wonky, an abstract painter who really helped shape abstract art in general in Korea. He worked with a ton of different patterns, colors. He was inspired by lyricism. He started out more with some definition in his forms, but then it became more and more abstract over time. He was very well known among Korean art and literature circles. He was also very inspired by nature and spent several years in a refugee camp that also shaped his outlook and in turn his work. He later developed some odd fixations, like drawing jars, just drawing jar after jar, as well as creating all these dot paintings. So many dots, so many jars. He was really interesting. He's also experimented with pottery, paper mache, collages. His father at first didn't want him to be involved in the art world. Instead wanted him to just get married and stay home. But he, against his dad's wishes, secretly went to Japan to study art anyway. He joined the avant-garde Western Art Institute secretly and was influenced by all these artists coming together, recapping the types of art surrealism, futurism that they had been exposed to on trips to Europe. He co-created the New Realism Group, actually the same year the Korean independent government happened to be established. What made his approach so different for the time was his intentional focus on what he called the internationalization of Korean art. While a lot of his peers just liked incorporating a bunch of European artistic influence, it's not like he was against that, but he also really wanted to show what Korean art specifically had to offer the whole world. So rather than his peers, who were really expanding their influences, he worked on refining his style, zeroing in more and more on what he found in Korean art that actually made it a contrast to what he was hearing about European art. His partner established a foundation in his name in 1978. One example of his work, it's called Where, In What Form, Shall We Meet Again? A dot painting that won a grand prize. One key quote to describe his life and his approach, quote, There's beauty in my art, and this beauty comes from having lived in the Korean countryside. Two fun facts I have to share. One is that his great-nephew is Top, Top from Big Bang. Other fun fact, he was in New York in the 60s when for modern artists, that was the place to be. That's where he met Mark Rothko, who we talked about in the K-Pop Times Artwork episode, and Namjoon Paik, who we'll talk about next. Namjoon Paik was really interested in video installation and using video as an art form. He wanted to merge conceptual with technological art concepts. 
also was inspired by film, seeing it as just such a malleable and worthwhile work of art to adapt to rapidly changing times. He also has installations that incorporate elements like smoke and water. It's like he's making 4D movies. He has an interesting view of the future because he predicted people would start to interpret the world through an, quote, electronic superhighway, unquote, that would help democratize access to media and interpretations of it, open up art to more people. He had a really interesting mobile art project. He purposely, with a remote control, steered a robot into the street, which then got struck and fell over, and that was intentional. He created a crash on Madison Avenue with a robot, on purpose. This display was meant to represent the need to quickly adapt and recognize the presence and huge influence of tech all over our lives, coming up when you least expect it. He also has pieces with interesting names, like Video Fish, TV Garden, and Moon is the Oldest TV. He focuses on mobility there too, using lasers in his approach to creating a sense of motion in light usage. Next, Ugo Rondinone. He's a Swiss artist residing in New York, and he views his art as what he calls a mental trinity of purposes. So instead of saying he specializes, he prefers to focus on a couple, and that's his trinity. One of his most well-known works is Seven Magic Mountains, which is in the desert outside of Vegas. Those boulders stacked on top of each other are up to 35 feet tall, and they are intentionally positioned to be looked at while you're on the interstate. So it's this juxtaposition between, you see a lake on one side, which is actually used as a frequent site of other artists' outdoor displays, and then the nature, the rocks on the other, and the traffic caught in the middle. So again, it's an artist who likes to make his work interactive and really come to life in a larger-than-life way, uncontained. RM has expressed appreciation for this, Seven Magic Mountains, as well as Nuns and Monks, which is about focusing on sensory stimulation and, quote, the dual reflection between the inner self and the natural world, unquote. Louise Bourgeois. She lived in Paris and started gaining prominence really in the 50s for her sculptures. She actually experimented with bronze, plaster, marble, creating anatomical structures, but she also became known for her spirals and spiders. The spirals were what she called a symbol of control and freedom. And then the spiders, they're enormous, giant steel spiders she started making in the 90s. They're over 30 feet tall. One of them sold for $40 million in 96. One of them in London is called Maman, which has a sack of eggs made of marble underneath it. Really interesting that she says she was drawn to making spiders because they remind her of her mom. And I'm pretty sure this is just a diss. Quote, she was deliberate, clever, patient, soothing, reasonable, dainty, subtle, indispensable, neat, and as useful as a spider. Unquote. Here's another artist I really found a preference for when looking at all these different characters, Dohosu. He was named Wall Street Journal's Innovator of the Year in 2013. He actually saw a career in marine biology before choosing to pursue art. He even represented Korea at 2001's Venice Biennale. He's been considered to do anti-monumentalist work focused on space and home. Being an immigrant to the U.S. definitely played a role in his work. He has one piece called Home Within Home Within Home Within Home, which is a silk version of his house. 
He also has this really interesting piece, Fallen Star, which has a traditional Korean house crashing into an LA one. He also had a display called High School Uniform, uni-form, which was meant to represent how something can be very distinct and very collective at the same time. Also how it can be funny how we attach certain memories and make certain assumptions about certain objects we see, how those provoke certain shared memories and thoughts. He also released Public Figures, which is a work of art featuring an empty pedestal that looks like it's surrounded by people. That made me think of Shadow by BTS. I know they didn't mean for it to nod to that, but I'm just saying his influence may have been noted. Really interesting quote about his goal for his work. Quote, explore the boundaries of this notion of individualism, in which each individual is the accumulation of so many different and discrete individuals, creates a bigger group, a bigger country, and a bigger world. Francis Ailes. He was inspired by his travels to conflict zones around the world, and he focuses on borders in his work. His is the kind of work that requires a closer look to really see all the tiny pictures within the picture, but he does focus mostly on big picture borders, and one specific work is border barriers typology, a set of oil paintings horizontally aligned, so they're all at the exact same eye level, and they have different names of conflict regions, places in conflict, diagonal from each other. Focusing on borders is symbolic for self-explanatory reasons, but he also focused on the symbolism you could get out of surveillance concepts. In self-imposed borders, if you want to get really philosophical, since he made quite a few of them in the typology from his period of isolation in 2020, when the world kind of shut down. Camille Pissarro, really, really wild life story. He was a Danish-French painter focused on Impressionism and Post-Impressionism. He also focused on outdoor rural scenes, and he loved natural lighting to do his work in. Some of his art actually for the time was considered so not fine art, vulgar and dirty, because it was just unpolished, the natural world, no polished fancy sheen to his work. He decided he would rather keep scraping along financially than get rich doing what made him unhappy but was popular. In hindsight, he was credited with the end of the Impressionist movement. When he broke from that Impressionist movement, it really signaled the transition into a new era. He had such an interesting story. He's born on what's now the Virgin Islands, worked as a port clerk, just started drawing on the side during breaks from work, he was viewed as the brotherly mentor of a group he helped organize back in 1873. This group of aspiring artists started their own exhibit because they got backlash for their ugly paintings, supposedly, and got rejected from the real exhibitions. They started their own and got backlash for doing so, too. The rebelliousness was not applauded. At this time, art is a high society exclusive endeavor and to stain that reputation with a focus on unpolished stuff, rural stuff, that did not go over well. He married his mom's maid and had seven kids with her. He met a Paris art dealer who helped him become popular in France. But actually, when he was there, he found out 1,500 of his paintings had been damaged during the war. 1,500 paintings and only 40 were spared. A significant number were just flat-out stolen by Nazis. 
Over many years, sounds like a Netflix series waiting to happen. There were a lot of court battles about the stolen artworks, which ones later were authentic or not because the Nazis who looted them would replace labels and things like that. Then he formed yet another art group where he was also the leader. And critics slammed this group and called their display, their exhibition, vulgar. They also criticized its abandonment of the traditional painting style saying it looked like a lazy, wet-on-wet-paint approach. But he was quoted as saying, paint generously and unhesitatingly, for it is best not to lose the first impression, unquote. He became the only artist to have work shown in all eight Paris Impressionist exhibitions. His family really kept the legacy going. He had three sons and a daughter. All four kids became painters. That his grandson became the head curator of drawing and painting at New York's Museum of Modern Art, and also became an art professor. And his granddaughter and great-granddaughter also became painters. Edouard Manet, a French painter who traveled throughout Europe. Arm specifically has shouted out, The luncheon on the grass is what it translates to. Le déjeuner soleaba. This caused quite a stir. It's really hard to find an analogy, a modern-day equivalent to high society art standards from previous decades, previous centuries even, because this is 1800s France, and classism is the name of the game. In the art world, you do not combine certain things. You don't combine certain social classes in your subjects. You don't use cheap art techniques. It's just a different level. And of course, in the fine art world, it may still be like that, but it's not at all it's hard to put in perspective how intense the restrictions on in the list of norms and expectations were for good artwork, what was considered good, tasteful. He really focused on shock and awe and showed an image of a naked woman on the luncheon on the grass. This piece naturally got rejected from exhibitions, and he got his instead on display at the Exhibition of Rejects, literal title. One criticism from Puris was that he merged indoor and outdoor motifs, putting indoor things like wearing a certain type of fancy hat in an outdoor setting. Not appropriate. There's also criticism for combining tiers of paintings. Tier 1 was considered to be reserved for large-scale, often religious imagery-full historical pictures. Tier 2 would be other portraits. And he made what would be considered other portraits on the kind of wide scale that does not, that they don't deserve in these critics' eyes. He also painted with a, a style that was not focused on the clear lines and other expectations of tier one artwork. He also kind of ignored art rules about the proportion of different objects in a picture and what those were supposed to be. People didn't seem to be particularly up in arms over the fact there was a naked woman. Actually, what they focused on was they thought it was scandalous that the park he had painted, they thought it was overtly meant to represent one specific park known for sexual liaisons. His painting style did have some admirers, though, and actually inspired some impressionists like Claude Monet, who painted a replica under the same title, but actually his had everyone with clothes on. Manet further got backlash because he liked to create pictures with confident women in them. At the time, the woman in your pictures had to act like the woman were expected to in real life. Coy, side-eyeing you, flirty, mysterious, quiet. But the ones in his work would stare right at you. They would be bold. They would be commanding. They would be loving the center of attention. 
It really just, critics were outraged. Critics didn't know what to do about him. One of the most fascinating today we're going to talk about is Gustave Corbett. He called himself the proudest and most arrogant man in France. He was all about shock factor. He was like the TMZ of the art from past centuries. He just wanted to make the news. He also kind of bailed on conventions about what size certain subjects paintings of should be, what was considered important enough for a certain scale or level of admiration. He didn't care about tonal mismatches between size, form, shape, etc. He too was criticized for ugly work, supposedly. But he was a glutton for both good and bad PR, and he didn't care then that he especially ticked off wealthier people who didn't like that he would paint as a subject people of lesser means. He also would paint people together without being class conscious of who they mingled with, who he categorized with who, the horror. He actually was offered a Legion of Honor award and turned it down, I think just because he was a glutton for any kind of PR, and that helped spice up the headlines to reject it. He also made people mad, and actually probably would today too, because he's so contrarian. On Twitter, he would be just slammed by people across the political spectrum because at the time people were kind of mad, like, why are your politics so nuanced? Because he wasn't fully a pacifist, but he also was not pro-war. He was also kind of active in the short-lived socialist era, so people didn't know what to do with him. Again, they didn't want to work in nuance here. He was arrested and sentenced to six months after he had contributed to a group's vandalizing of a Napoleon Authority symbol, this column representing Napoleon Authority. He went into voluntary exile in Switzerland to avoid prosecution. He then died there in 1877. He was so pretentious and kind of funny, but also not likable. Instead of seascapes, he insisted they be called landscapes of the sea. He also oddly made it like a life goal for him to get a nude portrait accepted by the jury into an exhibition. Zhao Wuqi. He began a massive project in the 90s for this underground Lisbon station, a giant ceramic wall panel that was unveiled in 1998. He was born in Beijing, moved to Shanghai, then studied in France. He earned French nationality in 64. He had a period of grief after his wife passed, but then went right back to work, made 14 pretty big paintings in Tokyo, got the attention of an art dealer from New York. In a nice full circle moment, he got to have his art on display at a place he used to go to school. He actually resigned from a teaching position because, according to his official site, quote, his work had become too important for him, unquote. He later traveled with the French president on a trip to China, Per his wishes, he was laid to rest in Paris. A tribute room, though, was set up for him in Tokyo, and today his work is featured in 20 countries, and over 150 collections are a part of it. He was also, at one point, neighbors with Alberto Giacometti, who we're going to talk about next. Giacometti was a Swiss sculptor, although he was also kind of known for painting and drawing. He became extra famous after he won a top prize at the Venice Biennale. He was very inspired by the look of toys and games. He also made at least 100 original designs for decor, from lamps to jewelry. He made his first oil painting at age 12. His sculptures are kind of like 4D stick figures, although one of his most expensive sculptures to ever go on sale at an auction was a life-size bronze sculpture. 
He was actually involved with a group of surrealist artists in Paris in the 30s, but got kicked out because his work was called too realistic for a surrealist club. Yeah, these people are very particular about following the rules. Speaking of surrealism, surrealist painter Own Kawara from Japan is another interesting artist. He has always focused on monochrome work in the Today series, also called the Date Paintings. He started this in January 1966. What's really interesting about this decades-long project now is that each piece, it's just a monochrome piece with subtitles often taken directly from newspapers, and he would put each date painting with the date on it in a cardboard box lined with pieces of paper from the news that day, like a This Day in History exhibit. He doesn't make one every day, but sometimes if he's in the mood, he'll make more than one that day. And the interesting agreement he made with himself is that if it's midnight and it's officially a new day and he didn't finish that day's painting, he just stops. Time's up. You lose. Throw it out. What's ironic is how he viewed this as an intimate project. Because he's not telling you anything secret, but he's still telling you something about his daily life. You basically know where his head is at every day of his life, yet you still don't know him personally. But it feels like you do. You get intimacy from the feeling that you're sharing history. You're in a shared global story, global current event. He also just got publicity for this, not just for what it represents, but the commitment. Yoon Hyun Kun, a South Korean artist affiliated with the Danseikwa movement, although later he tried to kind of distance himself from that to be known for more, but really he was known for being part of this movement. He became famous for working with two main colors, what he called umber and ultramarine. That was it. And he said his main theme was heaven and earth, blue representing heaven and umber, earth. He actually talked about the monotony in his work as meaningful. The repetition wasn't just for repetition's sake. The paint stroke repetition was his way of focusing on a journey over destination, living in the present moment, enjoying the work while it lasts mentality. He met Kim Wonki on a college campus when he was supervising Yoon's exams. He would eventually become his father-in-law. He was involved in a lot of political issues and socially aware. He participated in protests on campus, causing him to be beaten and then expelled in the 40s. He was detained again at the start of the Korean War. He escaped a firing squad with like less than a minute to spare. He protested, was back behind bars later, for both protesting again and drawing portraits for North Korea during Seoul's occupation. He became a high school art teacher and exposed corruption at the school, then went back behind bars after being accused of anti-communist law violations. He then entered surveillance and was blacklisted until 1980. A really interesting quote from him you can't make art from theory. I truly believe that eternal and fragrant art can only come from a pure and innocent person. Unquote. Alexander Calder. Someone RM called a pioneer, Calder became known for his mobile work, kinetic work, big public, mechanical, mobile, glorified toys, basically, in a good way. He was always fascinated by circuses, the mechanics and the aesthetics, and he helped sketch for the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. He worked on a ton of different mediums. He used to what he called drawing in space, which was wire sculptures. He also worked on mobiles, what he called wooden constellations. He would paint sheet metal. 
He made towers with beams coming out of the walls and pieces hanging off the beams. Regardless of the destination of his work or the purpose, he would often give his work a French name. He comes from a family of artists and actually started making his sister some copper wire jewelry for her dolls starting at age 8, which is really cute. But his parents did not at first want him to keep it going and wanted him to study mechanics instead. And he kind of figured he could find a way to do both. His first solo exhibit was in Chicago in the mid-30s. He started Cirque Calder in Paris in the 20s, which is a little tiny version of a circus, like a diorama made of little things, wire, string, rubber, cork. And it was meant to be a mobile thing, like you would fold it like a pop-up book or something, or more like a Lego set. He did some painting for an edition of Aesop Fables. He designed a metal project for the Senate. He designed sets for over a dozen theatrical shows. He created a ballet with his mobiles as props called Works in Progress. He also worked on anti-Vietnam War protest posters. He was asked to design for the JFK airport. He was actually requested also for a flying canvas involving a four-engine jet in Dallas. He got a lot of quirky requests because people who commissioned him knew he made mobile things, which opens up a world of possibilities. This made me think of RM's actually self-designed merch. He was also commissioned at one point to make a headboard with images of dangling fish hanging off of it. RM has particularly liked the tree. His work that is a bunch of metal sheets hanging from a rod. It's like a clothesline with clothes, only it's metal. Gerald Ford posthumously gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his, quote, statement favoring amnesty for Vietnam War draft resistors, unquote. An interesting quote from Calder is about how he didn't want people to read into what he did. He didn't want people to interpret his work. He wanted it to just speak for itself, and it was kind of self-explanatory. Look, here's a circus or here's a, a mountain, whatever he was making an image of. Quote, theories may be all very well for the artist himself, but they shouldn't be broadcast to other people, unquote. Just a few others I want to get to before wrapping it up today. Just going to quickly go through a few more that deserve a shout out. Chain Uchin, a Korean modern artist, really focused on cute, childlike work. He viewed childlike as not an insult, but a compliment. And he liked homey themes, rural scenes, and just painting simple pleasures, the little things that bring you joy. He said, quote, An artist's role is to seek out their own art with creativity, and they need to know themselves very well. In order to do so, they need naivete, unquote. Alex Katz, a New York artist who covered an extreme amount of forms and topics, he would paint by day and then at night make mini collages from carefully cut paper. He then got into big portraits, printmaking, landscape painting. He then focused on lighting. He then entered his flowers on canvas era and then portraits of people era. He made over 50 paintings, mostly of flowers and the land, just in the spring and summer of 2020. He's also designed sets and costumes for Paul Taylor, a famous choreographer. Today, his work has become the subject of over 250 solo exhibits and almost 500 group exhibits around the world. Lee Soon-Gio He was inspired by geometry and optical illusions. He liked using diagonal lines to make his art feel more 3D. 
He became a founding member of the Korean Avant-Garde Association, but started to gain traction in the U.S. in the 2010s. He was called the pipe artist because he worked with a lot of cylinders, bands, drew a lot of pipe imagery. And he named every painting Nucleus. All of his paintings, all Nucleus, sometimes followed by a number, like Nucleus 5. El Greco, a.k.a. Dominikos Theotokopoulos. He was considered the first Cubist and Picasso's first love. He made a lot of Cubanist work in religious paintings. He tried to impress the Spanish king and failed. Then he moved in shame, basically. He actually was way ahead of his time. His work was in vogue just years after he died because he was virtually unknown, forgotten to history, until some French artists discovered his work posthumously and were jazzed about it, popularized it, then he made it. Lastly, Isamu Noguchi. He calls his work Akari, meaning both light in terms of weightlessness and light in terms of brightness. He designs lamps reflective of the style of traditional Japanese lanterns. Actually, just before recording this episode, RM posted to Instagram the work of Park Gosok, and now I want to look more into him, because Outer Voice is a really beautiful painting. One more last-minute shout-out for you. I will link to on my site places where you can actually see and read about all the art I talked about on the show today. I hope you enjoyed this exposure into the interesting world of art. And if you want to hear more, I may do a part two someday, let me know. Odds are RM will continue to give us interesting recommendations, and I can break those down for you. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope this helped you better appreciate the artist RM and his art recommendations. And I will talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody.